Please be seated. So, are you all good at remembering lines from movies? You good at memorizing lines? You know, screenwriters have written some really memorable things for characters to say in the movies, especially before that character dies on camera. For example, remember the first Star Wars movie? Remember this this scene from uh, Star Wars? where Obi-Wan Kenobi is having a lightsaber battle with Darth Vader, and Obi-Wan says, you can't win, Darth. If you strike me down, I shall become more powerful than you can possibly imagine. Remember that? How about the Wizard of Oz? Dorothy throws water on the witch, and she screams, I'm melting, melting. Whoever thought a little girl like you could destroy my beautiful wickedness? Remember that? Great moment. How about Terminator 2? where the good android, Arnold Schwarzenegger, gets shot, smashed, and crushed more times than you can count. And on the way to terminate himself to save the world, he says, I need a vacation. (laughs) Remember that? Well, these are lines from movies. What about last words in real life? John Quincy Adams, sixth president of the United States, on his deathbed said, I am content. Joan Crawford, the actress, was dying from cancer. And she saw two nurses bow their heads to pray. And Joan Crawford's last words on earth were, don't you dare ask God to help me. Humphrey Bogart, the actor, kept his sense of humor to the very end. He was dying of throat cancer. And with his family gathered around his bed, it's recorded the last things he said on earth were, I never should have switched from scotch to martinis. One of my favorite actors, Danny Kaye, on his deathbed said, for the first time in my life, I have no future. The final earthly words of my favorite Christian author, Dallas Willard, were, thank you. Those are his dying words, thank you. And the final words I heard my mother say, just before she went home to be with the Lord, were, don't cry, it's all good. We can learn a lot about how someone lived by listening to what they said just before they died. And today, you picked a great day to come to church because today we're starting our study of Deuteronomy, which record for us the last words of Moses before he died. And today we're going to get an overview of the entire book. It's a great day to be here. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you took Moses' last words and you saved them for us because those words are as fresh and as meaningful right now as they were all that time ago. Father, I pray that in this time together we would just give you our complete and undivided attention as we begin our study of this very exciting book. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. I have a picture to show you. Uh, Pastor Chris and Renee in Texas, uh, Church Plant Texas, had a new baby boy. I'll let you picture, figure out which one is the new baby boy. That's Wyatt Asher, along with his brother and sister, Finley and Deacon. Um, Wyatt was 9 pounds, 10 ounces. You know what's funny? This happened last night, too. I say 9 pounds, 10 ounces. All the guys are going like, and all the women are going like, yeah, big, big boy. So that's really good news. Um, 
On the not-so-good news, Pastor Mark's throat, his vocal cords, still not good. So please continue to pray for our beloved lead pastor. Did anyone manage to read the book of Deuteronomy all the way through in preparation? Yes. You're a stud. Yes. Took about a couple hours, right? Three. Me too. Me too. Awesome. Yeah. Well, God's going to bless you. Now, if you didn't, you can, well, you can't do it now. Read it this weekend and come back and raise your hand next week when, when you'll be up here. You'll ask. Drew will ask. Okay. Thank you. I'm glad you got to read it. It's, it's awesome. There are 34 chapters. 30, 34 chapters in the book of Deuteronomy that record Moses' last words before he died as he prepared to leave this earth and he prepared his people to go on without him into the promised land. So before we look at what Moses said, let's remind ourselves of who Moses was, okay? So if you've seen the movie The Ten Commandments, then you know that Moses looked exactly like Charlton Heston. <laughs> Moses was born in Egypt. He was born a slave in Egypt. Do you remember how the children of Israel became slaves in Egypt? Let's turn to Exodus chapter 1, okay? Exodus 1, verses 1 to 7. Around, just a little quick history for this. About 1850 B.C., or 1,850 years before Christ, there was a Hebrew man named Joseph that God blessed to become the second most powerful man in all of Egypt. And Joseph invited his father and brothers, his whole family, to leave the land of Canaan where there was seven years of severe drought, and he brought his whole family to live with them in Egypt. So let's read about that. In Exodus chapter 1, verses 1 to 7. This is really good. Okay, now these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. One of them was Joseph. Jacob's name is also Israel. God gave him that name. They came each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the persons who came from the loins of Jacob were 70 in number, but Joseph was already in Egypt. Okay, before we get to the next verse, in verse 6, we have a time jump of about 70 years. So 70 years pass. It says, Joseph died. He was 110 years old when he died. And all his brothers and all that generation. But the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. Egypt was full of the people from Canaan, the Hebrews. For generations, the people flourished happily. They were doing great. And then the political climate changed. Let's look at Exodus chapter 1, verses 8 to 14. <clears throat> now, a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. That doesn't mean he didn't study history. He knew who Joseph was. It means he just flat out didn't care. He, the new king, said to his people, the Egyptians, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier, mightier than we. Come, let us deal wisely with them, or else they will multiply. And in the event of war, they will also join themselves with those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. So they appointed taskmasters over the people of Israel to afflict them with hard labor. This means forced slave labor. And they built for Pharaoh, the children of Israel built for Pharaoh storage cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more the Egyptians afflicted the people of Israel, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread out. So the Egyptians were in dread of the sons of Israel. The Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor rigorously. They kept working them harder and harder and more cruelly. 
And they made their lives bitter with hard labor in mortar and bricks and at all kinds of labor in the field, all their labors which they rigorously imposed or forced on them. Life was not good in Egypt. New Pharaoh came to power and he did not have any regard for all the wonderful things Joseph had done for his empire in the past. This king feared the children of Israel, so he enslaved them all. And then he did something worse. Look at Exodus chapter 1, verse 22. <clears throat> then, after all that nonsense, then Pharaoh commanded his pe- all his people, saying, Every son of Israel who is born, you are to cast into the Nile, and every daughter you are to keep alive. Wow. Pharaoh issued an evil decree for population control. He ordered his people to drown every newborn Hebrew son. And it's during this gruesome, hideous time that Moses was born in Egypt. Let's read about that. Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. Here we're introduced to Moses' parents. Here's Moses' father. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a daughter of Levi. The woman conceived and bore a son. That was Moses. And when she saw that he was beautiful... She hid him for three months. Remember, she was, they would have killed Moses, but she hid him, kept him hidden for three months. Verse 3, but when she could hide him no longer, she got him a wicker basket and covered it over with tar and pitch. Then she put the child into it and set him among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to find out what would happen to him, what would happen to her little baby brother. And look at verse 5. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the Nile, with her maidens walking alongside the Nile, and she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid, and she brought it to her. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the boy was crying, and she had pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then Moses' sister, who was stationed right there, said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go ahead. So the girl, Moses' sister, went and called the child's mother, Moses' real mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to Moses' real mother, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. The child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son, and she named him Moses and said, Because I drew him out of the water. Moses should have been killed as a baby boy. That was the law of the land. He should have been killed. He should have been drowned. But God provided for Moses to be adopted by Pharaoh's own daughter. So the man who made the evil plan to kill Moses and all his brethren ended up being Moses' adopted grandfather. And then, look what God did. God allowed Moses' real mother to nurse him and get paid for it out of Pharaoh's pocket. Yes. God is an amazing problem solver. If you're going to remember anything this morning, remember that. In fact, write it down. I'm going to write, I, I did write it down. It's here. God is an amazing problem solver for all the things that trouble us. Look at God's solution. Let's look at Acts chapter 7. It'll be on the board for you, 22 to 24. It tells us about Moses' life. Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians, and he was a man of power in words and deeds. But when he was approaching the age of 40, so here he is as a 40-year-old man now, it entered into his mind to visit the brethren, the sons of Israel. And when he saw one of them being treated unjustly, Moses defended him and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. Moses murdered an Egyptian taskmaster and tried to cover it up, but there were witnesses. And Pharaoh found out, and Pharaoh wanted to kill Moses. 
So Moses had to flee. He had to run away to the land of Midian and hide out. And he stayed in Midian, in the wilderness of Midian, for 40 more years. And while he was there, he became a shepherd, and he got married, and he had two sons. So when Moses was about 80 years old, that, that means he was, you know, he had been 40 years in Egypt, now 40 years in the, in the uh, wilderness, his life took an unexpected turn when God spoke to him through a burning bush. Here's exactly what that looked like. The Lord commanded Moses to go back to Egypt and lead God's people to freedom. And Moses responded to the Lord <coughs> with a list of reasons why he was not the right guy for the job. Look what Moses told the Lord. He said, uh, Lord, I'm not good enough. I don't have all the answers. People won't believe me. I'm a terrible public speaker. I'm not qualified. If we're honest, at least with ourselves, aren't we all a little bit like Moses there when the Lord gives us a job to do? Don't we tend to feel inadequate for the Lord's calling? Do you know why we feel inadequate when the Lord calls us to a job? It's because we are inadequate. In ourselves, we are very inadequate to do what God calls us to do. So this means when we serve the Lord, you and I, we can't, we can't focus on our abilities or on our lack of abilities. Instead, we need to focus 100% on God's ability to accomplish exactly what he wants to accomplish in us for his kingdom. Let me say that again because I need to hear it. When we serve the Lord, we can't worry about our strengths and our weaknesses. What we need to do is focus entirely on God's strength to do exactly what he wants us to do for his kingdom. We can trust God to do that. Moses learned to stop worrying about his weaknesses and trust completely in the power of God. Moses learned to stop worrying about his weaknesses and just trust totally in the power of God. What a lesson. What a great lesson for you and for me. So Moses and his brother Aaron went to Egypt and stood before Pharaoh. And Moses said, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go. Pharaoh was unimpressed. He said no. In fact, he made the people of Israel even work harder and more cruelly. But God demonstrated his power through Moses by sending ten devastating plagues on the people of Egypt. God did this not only to break Pharaoh's will, but to prove to the people of Israel they could trust the Lord their God and they could follow God's servant Moses. Pharaoh finally did give in and let Moses and the people go. But after Moses and the people left Egypt, the king changed his mind. And he assembled an elite army of his finest chariots and chased after them. Pharaoh thought he had them trapped at the edge of the Red Sea. So Pharaoh arrayed his chariots in attack formation and prepared to slaughter Moses and the children of Israel. But God had other plans. God is a great problem solver. The Lord gave Moses the power to part the Red Sea, and the people of Israel just walked across it on dry land. And when the Egyptians chased after them, God closed the water, and that mighty army was drowned. Impressive? A short time later, a very short time later, the people of Israel forgot 
the miracles that God performed in Egypt, and they forgot the miracle at the Red Sea. Why? Because they were getting really hungry and really thirsty out in the wilderness. And they began to worry about being so hungry and thirsty, and they began to grumble, and they began to complain. Again, being honest with ourselves, aren't we sometimes like the children of Israel in this way? When a new life problem presents itself to us, do we forget God's faithfulness over our past problems? Has that ever happened to you? You seem to forget what all the things God has done for you in the past, because now there's a new big problem looming in front of you. Or it's an old, long, lingering problem, and you forget God's faithfulness. It's often easier. It's human nature, I guess. It's often easier for us to worry and complain than it is for us to remember the faithfulness of God and just totally, totally trust him. The Lord miraculously provided food and water for these hungry and thirsty people. Water came from a rock and food fell from the sky. Manna was a cake-like or a bread-like food that came down from heaven every morning with the dew. So the people woke up in the morning and gathered as much as they wanted and they had plenty to eat. And then God led Moses and the people to Mount Sinai where Moses went up and down this mountain numerous times, maybe as many as eight different times to meet with the Lord. God gave Moses a lot of information on this mountain, including the Ten Commandments that were written on tablets of stone by by God himself. I wonder what God's handwriting looks like. Don't you want to see that? I do for some reason. I don't want to see what that looks like. I bet you it's better than mine. Just thinking. When God gave his law to Moses, the Lord not only gave Israel a very unique way to live on earth, but the Lord showed all mankind our sinful condition and our absolute need for a Savior who is Christ the Lord, who would be born about 1,400 years after Moses. Now, after leaving Mount Sinai, the Lord God led the children of Israel right to the border of the Promised Land. They could have entered the Promised Land right then and right there. But the people were afraid. People were afraid because they didn't want to fight against the inhabitants of the land, even though God told them he would absolutely give them the victory. How often do you and I do that? How often do we question the Lord's ability or the Lord's willingness to give us victory over the scary things in our lives? These people were facing a scary obstacle. I get it. How often do we face something scary and we doubt the Lord's faithfulness and Lord's willingness and Lord's ability to remove that scary obstacle for us, to give us victory? So the people of Israel refused to believe in God's promises. They refused to trust the Lord's love, his power, his provision, and his protection. They refused to live by faith in the Lord their God. So instead of being able to enter the promised land less than two weeks after they left Mount Sinai, God caused them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until that entire unbelieving generation died except for Joshua and Caleb who trusted in the Lord. During these 40 long years in the wilderness, the people continued to sin. They continued to rebel against God and Moses continued to intervene and go before the Lord and beg for mercy on behalf of the people. I remember reading about this story in my Bible for the first time when I was like in the fifth grade, maybe sixth grade. And I remember reading this, and I couldn't believe how God put up with these people. Couldn't believe it. 
Then as I got older, I couldn't believe how God put up with me. I still don't. Moses was a faithful leader and a wonderful servant of God, but he wasn't perfect. At one point, Moses got really frustrated when the people got on his last nerve. They got thirsty again, and now they accused Moses of bringing them out into the wilderness to die of thirst. The Lord told Moses to speak to a rock, and God would provide water from that rock. This miracle was God's way to show how Christ would come, Christ the Messiah would come to be the living water for all who believe in him. But Moses was in no mood to listen to the Lord and obey. So instead of speaking to the rock, as the Lord commanded him, Moses struck the rock with his wooden staff. And look what Moses said just before he hit the rock. This is in Numbers 20.10. It'll be on the screen. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock, and Moses said to them, Listen now, you rebels. What a nice way to start a message, huh? Listen now, you rebels. Shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? Instead of humbly obeying the Lord and letting people see water flow out of that rock as a symbol of the eternal life that was coming in the Lord Jesus, Moses acted like he and his brother were doing all the work themselves. Brothers and sisters, you and I sin any time we get the notion that our ministry is about us. Any time we forget that the ministry is entirely about the Lord. Even when you and I reach the limits of our human endurance, we still must trust and we still must obey the Lord. Even when we're tired, even when things are going wrong, we must trust and obey the Lord at all times. How did God respond to Moses' disobedience? This may sound harsh, but the Lord allowed Moses to see the promised land from a distance, but Moses was not allowed to enter it. The Word of God shows us a life principle that you and I need to really understand very clearly. Here's the principle. God takes all sin seriously. God takes all sin seriously. And the book of Deuteronomy beautifully shows us, though, that Moses humbly submitted to the discipline of the Lord. And before he died, Moses wrote these magnificent words that we're going to get to study together in the book of Deuteronomy. By the way, it is believed that Joshua, Moses' successor, actually wrote the final portion of the book of Deuteronomy where it describes Moses' death and very tender burial by God. Moses was human, just like you and me. Moses wrestled with his emotions, he struggled with his calling, and he had moments of victory and failure. Yet he loved the Lord with all of his heart and all of his soul and all of his strength. So God blessed and used Moses in mighty ways, just like God can use you and use me. Moses lived 120 years. He was born a slave, raised in the palace of Pharaoh, lived in exile in the wilderness, led a nation, and wrote the first five books of the Bible. Moses wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. These five books are called the Law, or Pentateuch in the Greek, or Torah in the Hebrew. The book of Deuteronomy is quoted over 40 times in the New Testament. 
Only the books of Isaiah and Psalms are quoted more often than Deuteronomy. And in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses repeats the phrase, the Lord your God, over 250 times. Do you think Moses is trying to tell us something? The Lord is our God. The Lord is God. Author Henrietta Beers said this about the book of Deuteronomy. It's really beautiful. She said, no book in all the word of God pictures better the life that is lived according to God's will and the richness and fullness of spiritual living along the rugged pathway of simple obedience. I love that. The rugged pathway of simple obedience. If you want a taste of heaven on earth, become familiar with Deuteronomy. So let's become familiar with the book of Deuteronomy right now. We have a very entertaining and educational and fun video for you to watch. Let's play that now, and then I'll come back. The book of Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Bible and the final book of the Torah. After the exodus from Egypt, Israel was at Mount Sinai for one year entering into a covenant with their God. And then they had the disastrous road trip through the wilderness and the exodus generation disqualified themselves from entering into the land promised to Abraham. And so Deuteronomy begins with Moses standing in front of this new generation explaining the Torah. And it's from here that the design and purpose of the book unfolds. Deuteronomy is a series of speeches from Moses where he's calling the next generation of Israel to be faithful to the covenant with their God. At the center of the book is a collection of laws, which are the terms of the covenant between God and Israel. Some of the laws are new, but many are repeated from the laws given earlier at Mount Sinai. And that's actually where this book gets its name, from a Greek word, deuteronomion, which means a second law. Now surrounding these laws are two outer sections of Moses' speech. Each of these are broken up into two parts themselves. Let's just dive in and we'll see how this whole thing works. So Moses first of all summarizes the story so far and he highlights how rebellious the previous generation was in contrast with God's constant grace and provision in the wilderness. And God did bring his justice on them, yes, but he did not abandon his covenant promises. After this comes a series of very passionate sermons where Moses calls on this new generation to be more faithful than their parents were to the covenant. He reminds them of the Ten Commandments and then the centerpiece of this section is a famous line called the Shema. Moses says, listen, Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone, and you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. This became a very important daily prayer in Judaism, and it brings all of the themes of the book together. So the word listen, or shema in Hebrew, it means much more than just to hear. Its meaning includes responding to what you hear, or in English we would say obey. And the word love in Hebrew also means much more than just an emotion or feeling. It's about a decision of wholehearted devotion to God that involves your will and your emotions, your mind and your heart. Now, for Israel, their obedience and devotion to God served a much larger purpose. Obedience to the laws is going to make Israel a unique people among the nations. Just like God said at Mount Sinai, they will become a kingdom of priests. And Moses now says, how? Israel has the chance by following the laws to show the whole world the wisdom and the justice of God. The other key idea in the Shema is that Israel was called to obey and be devoted to the Lord alone. Or literally, in Hebrew, it says, the Lord is one. Now, in context, the point is that the Lord is the one God Israel is to worship and obey. 
Israel's about to go into the land of Canaan, where people worship idol gods that represent all different aspects of creation, the sun, the weather, sex, and war. And in Moses' view, worshiping these gods degrades humans and destroys communities. But worshiping the God of Israel, who's the creator and the redeemer, that will lead to life and blessing. And so we come to the large collection of laws at the center of the book. And they're roughly arranged by topic. So the opening section is about Israel's worship of their God. They were to have one central temple where one God would be worshipped. And also, God was to be worshipped in Israel's care for its poor. So for example, all Israelites were to set aside one-tenth of their annual income to be given to the temple. But another tenth was to be set aside every three years and given to the poor. And these are the kinds of laws that put Israel on the cutting edge of justice in comparison to their ancient neighbors. And it was all bound up with their worship of God. The next section outlines the character qualities of Israel's leaders. So the elders, the priests, the kings, these were all placed under the authority of the covenant laws, which God said that he would enforce by sending prophets to keep the leaders accountable. So in contrast to Israel's neighbors, where kings were thought of as divine and a law unto themselves, Israel's leaders were subordinate to the law and the prophets. Following this is a large section of laws about Israel's civil life, so rules about marriage and family and business, and also about social justice, about their legal system and how it was to protect widows and orphans and immigrants. And then these are concluded by more laws about worship. Now, here's some tips for reading all of these laws. Remember, first of all, these are the terms of the Sinai Covenant given specifically to ancient Israel, living in a culture that's very different from yours. And so two, it's not going to be helpful to compare these laws with modern laws from a very different culture. Rather, these were given to set Israel apart. And so we need to compare these laws with those of Israel's neighbors, like in Assyria or Babylon. And when you do that, all of a sudden laws that seemed harsh or bizarre become much more clear. You see that God is pushing Israel to a higher level of justice than was ever known before. And so finally, try to discern what core principles of wisdom or justice underlie any particular law. And you'll discover some really profound things. So here's an extra credit assignment. Go see how Paul the Apostle does this very thing in his first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 9, verse 9. And he quotes a law from Deuteronomy, chapter 25, verse 4. It's really interesting. So back to Moses. After he goes through all of the laws, he issues a final challenge that Israel should listen to and love their God. He first issues a warning and an ultimatum. If Israel listens to and obeys their God, everything's going to go great, lots of divine blessing. But if they don't listen and rebel, famine, plague, devastation, and ultimately exile from the land. And then Moses forces a decision. He says, today I set before you all life or death, blessing or curse, goodness or evil. So choose life by loving the Lord your God and listening to him. But then Moses says this. He says, I know that after I die, you're going to rebel and turn away from God and end up in exile, which is kind of a downer. But then again, he's been with these people for decades and it becomes clear that his hopes are not very high. But all is not lost, Moses says. One day, when Israel is sitting in exile, at any point, Moses says, they can turn back to their God, who will, in his words, circumcise your hearts so that you may love him with all your heart and soul and live. 
Now, this is a vivid metaphor that's saying something is fundamentally wrong with Israel's heart. It's stubborn and hard. And it's the same thing wrong with the heart of all of humanity. This is going all the way back to the rebellion in the garden. Humans seized autonomy from God. They wanted to define good and evil for themselves, and they ruined God's good world as a result. But one day, Moses says, God is going to do something to transform the hearts of his people so that they can truly listen to and love God from the heart and be led back to true life. And this is the promise that gets picked up by the later biblical prophets, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, the hope for a new heart. So Moses ends his speech with a poem of warning and then of blessing, and then he walks up onto a mountain and he dies. And so the Torah draws to a close. All of the major plot tensions of the biblical story are in place, but left totally unresolved. So when is the descendant of the woman going to come and defeat evil? Or how is God going to rescue the whole world and bless all nations through this family? And how can God's holiness be reconciled with people who are continually rebellious? And how is God going to transform the hearts of his people? You just have to keep reading to find out. But for now, that's what the book of Deuteronomy is all about.